This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. first skier's subway in the West, possibly in the world, will start operating here on Tuesday. It will transport winter sportsmen horizontally into the heart of a mountain. Youthful skiers hereabouts already are referring to it as the Tunnel of Love. Welcome to Range, Stories of the New American West. I'm Amy Westervelt, and what you just heard in the intro was Mary Catherine O'Connor reading the introduction of a December 1964 news story in the New York Times, written by Jack Goodman and describing a then-soon-to-debut skier conveyance at Treasure Mountain, a ski resort that United Park City Mines had opened the year before. Yep, I heard about this underground lift last winter when I was on a press trip in Utah's Wasatch Range. Thanks, Ski Utah! And it really piqued my curiosity about how much the roots of ski resorts are intertwined with the mining industry. And what I learned after digging deeper (laughs) is that a number of mining companies (laughs) or mining entrepreneurs were involved in developing ski resorts as early as the late 1930s. As the market for certain ores faltered, mining companies decided resort building could be more lucrative. That happened in Park City for sure, and over in the neighboring canyon where Alta and Snowbird resorts now stand. Lots of ski resorts in Colorado and other states have extractive industry roots as well. I think that's so interesting. I, I like I now that you say it, it makes sense. But I don't think that very many people, when they go to ski at like Park City or Aspen or whatever, think like, "Oh, this probably used to be a mine." Mm-hmm. Right. But of course, mining left a huge environmental legacy, both in terms of water quality and on terrestrial ecosystems that ski resorts are still grappling with. And in some places, the transition from mining town to ski town has not been very smooth or terribly successful. And Kellogg, Idaho is perhaps the poster child for that, but we'll learn much more about that later. First, I want to hear more about this tunnel of love. (laughs) Well, it was a dud. That 20-minute ride turned out to be more like a 45- to 60-minute ride, due in part to the time it took to transition from the quote-unquote subway to the mine shaft, which carried skiers up It all sounds so romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, and any notions of romance were squashed by the dark, dank tunnel, which Sandra Morrison, who directs the Park City museum described to me as quote disquieting wet and dripping so sexy (laughs) and then when they emerge from the shaft i know they sometimes be super wet and cold despite a promise of a dry ride (laughs) everything about it is so wrong (laughs) so most skiers opted for the 22 minute ride in what was then a state-of-the-art gondola and treasure mountain which is now park city mountain resort shuttered the skier subway five years later. Mm-hmm. And while we can thank mining companies for developing the far more efficient surface and aerial lifts that we still use to whiz us upslope, those industries also left a toxic legacy. The Richardson Flat Superfund site is a 2,000 
6,700-acre valley just north of Park City. Jesus. Where 7 million tons of mining waste from mines owned and leased by United Park City Mines, which owned Treasure Mountain, which built the skier subway, had settled. Um, The tailings sent heavy metals into Silver Creek, and in 2007 and in 2014, United Park City Mines, which now is owned by Talisker Land Holdings, which is a super high-end property developer in Park City, agreed to help clean up two sections of this area. Hmm. But there are also lots of smaller impact zones. Many old mine shafts and tunnels are spread across the Wasatch Range, often in places that resorts now operate. And uh, remediating those areas is not only expensive, it's also legally fraught, which I learned from talking with uh, Warren Collier, the Western Restoration Program Director for Trout Unlimited. TU is an environmental advocacy group focused on restoring streams and rivers, especially those that harbor trout, salmon, and other species beloved by anglers. It's not associated directly with the skiing industry, but in the early aughts, TU worked with Snowbird Resort to remediate a couple of old mining zones in the American Fork Canyon, which traverses snowboard and forest service property and where mining waste sometimes leaches into the American Fork Creek, impacting native trout. So the Forest Service had already remediated the portion of the abandoned mine on Forest Service land, and the leader of that project had retired from the agency. So here's Warren explaining what happened next. In most cases, the mining companies that created the mess are long gone, bankrupt, defunct. Uh, Sometimes they were just private miners. And so at this point, nobody really owns the mess. Uh, As soon as a group comes in to clean it up, they then own it, and that's a deterrent. So uh, in the Snowbird example, Uh, We developed a memorandum of understanding with Snowbird to tackle the problem. Uh, Then we realized that we couldn't tackle the problem if we were going to incur this liability, so we uh, entered negotiations with the Environmental Protection Agency to um, draft what came to be an administrative order on consent, which basically shielded us from liability. Um, Sort of a complicated legal tool, but what it basically says is if we do the project right um, and uh, basically um, develop and implement a plan that the EPA and other agencies support, then once the project is over, uh, we are done. We can walk away and don't have any liability in the future. So that all took two years, while the actual cleanup project took a month. So now TU has a big abandoned mine restoration program across the West, and it's lobbying for legal pathways, a good Samaritan law, to codify the liability shield so it won't always be such an arduous process. However, when mining sites are wet, meaning they touch ground or surface water, that opens up any remediation work to the Clean Water Act, which allows for third parties to sue. It's worth noting that this is a really important part of the Clean Water Act because it gives whistleblowers a legal tool if, say, they see someone dumping stuff illegally. But it also means that even with a Good Samaritan law, groups like TU would still be open to third-party lawsuits whenever doing environmental remediation in wet sites. That's super interesting and complicated, and I feel like makes it harder for anyone to want to remediate these sites. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you see pictures of Kellogg and its neighboring community, Smelterville, um, from the 1960s or 1970s, it, it kind of looks like a moonscape or maybe like the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite denuded, um, and that was largely a product of the zinc plant and the high levels of sulfur dioxide that it emitted, um, which made the soil really acidic and, and made it difficult for that, that soil uh, to sustain plant life. That was Bradley Snow. He's a history professor at Montana State University, and he just published a book that delves into Silver Valley in Idaho's Panhandle, the site of one of the biggest environmental and public health disasters in U.S. history, and home to Silver Mountain, a little ski resort that really wants to get past its history as a super fun site and into a future as a year-round summer and ski resort that is super fun. See what I did there? <laughs> Good one. Um, also, I would just like to note here for the record that a certain someone's expert real estate investor parents bought a tiny condo in Silver Mountain a few years ago. <laughs> I have no. So first of all, like I didn't know that you were going to mention Silver Mountain in this story mm-hmm. until we started taping this. And uh, like I, I still don't totally understand how my parents ended up with this place. <laughs> they went on a trip to Coeur d'Alene. They really liked it. And they were like, we need to we need to buy a piece of this place. And and at the time, Silver Mountain was doing a ton of marketing and they thought, oh, this is perfect. But they um, they couldn't really afford um, they couldn't really afford a place initially. And they kept like going back and trying to find a place. Um, I don't remember them ever, ever describing it to me as a former Superfund site. So I'm going to ask them about that. I think you should do it. Okay, so I did it, and their first question was... I don't know what a super fun site <laughs> I don't think that my dad would know what a super fun site was either, maybe. So, actually, apparently when they first tried to buy in, there wasn't anything available in their price range. And then, like, one year later, a realtor called them with a quote-unquote good deal on a unit that someone had bought in the first phase and then already wanted to sell, which should have been, like, a huge red flag, but my dad was like, yes, I'm finally on the ladder! We were excited because at the time it was owned by Gerald Wynn, who was with doors and windows and that kind of thing, and they were going to put a lot of money into it and expand the ski resort. And then, of course, we bought it in 07 and in 08, and everything tanked. So. Anyway, let's get back to the experts. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So Brad's book is called Living with Lead, an Environmental History of Idaho's Coeur d'Alene. Sounds like a real page turner. Mm -hmm. Uh, This area encompasses the Silver Valley, which he told me is the richest producing silver district in world history. And it has also produced a lot of the nations and the world's lead and zinc. 
Brad spent years researching the mining boom times, the subsequent bust, the environmental cleanup that ensued, and how the region has struggled between moving toward a tourism-based economy and remaining an extractive one, because there are still active mines in the region. The man who first laid claim to all that mineral wealth was Noah Kellogg. Here's Brad with the backstory. Well, out there, they like to say that uh, the legend goes that his jackass actually discovered it. It was in uh, September of, in late September of 1885. And as the story goes, the jackass wandered off from old Noah Kellogg, uh, a sometime prospector. And the, he ran after the jackass and found it munching on some grass and standing over a huge outcropping of very rich galena or lead uh, lead silver. And that was the beginning of the world rushing in to this very isolated place um, in northern Idaho. So then what happened? Well, a lot of money happened and a lot of extraction happened and two railroads were built through the Silver Valley. A lead smelter was built near Kellogg in 1917 and a zinc plant in 1928. And then in 1968, just as skiing was becoming popular in the West, some developers came to Kellogg and started a little ski resort. They called it Jackass Ski Bowl in homage to Noah's Jackass. I can't wait to tell my dad that he bought into Jackass Ski Bowl. (laughs) It's perfect. Yes. Well, he doesn't know that, of course, because it's sadly no longer called Jackass Ski Bowl. Bowl. It's gone through a few different owners, and it was renamed twice, first to Silverhorn and then Silver Mountain. But anyway, the developers who started the resort couldn't quite make a go of it. And in 1972, Bunker Hill Mining Company bought the resort. It wasn't really a side hustle for Bunker Hill so much as an amenity for the town and the miners. Hmm. And here's Brad again. The mining company, Bunker Hill, was the biggest mining and the only smelting and refining company out there uh, in the Coeur d'Alene's, as the area was known, um, or is this also known as the Silver Valley. And they did a lot for the community. I mean, they had a YMCA that they built that everybody could use. Uh, they employed lots of people, they sponsored Boy Scout troops, and they had this uh, ski, uh, ski resort, uh, but it was mainly for the community, mm-hmm. um, um, at least until the early 1980s uh, when they tried to turn it into more of a destination, or in the mid-1980s actually, when they tried to turn it into more of a destination ski resort mm-hmm. after the company was, was done. Wait, when did the mining company leave? So also around the time that Bunker Hill took over the ski area, Golf Chemical and Resources, a Houston-based company, did a hostile takeover of Bunker Hill. Mm. And according to Brad, the new owners didn't really have the community's interest in heart. Um, And in the late 1970s, when the market was getting pretty poor, they tried to sell Bunker Hill and could not find a buyer. Bunker Hill Mine was shuttered in 1982, but cue the triumphant music. The town of Kellogg stepped in, and here's Brad to tell more about that. This was their ticket, was to, for the community of Kellogg, that is. This was their ticket. Um, they were no longer a mining and smelting community. Bunker Hill was gone, for good, presumably for good, and they were going to try to become a ski town based on this ski resort that they had that was basically just a little hill that locals used. Um, and then they began the effort to try to get a gondola um, in order to turn it into um, a destination ski resort. 
Okay, so what about all the super fun stuff? When did that happen? Right. So I did kind of bury the lead here, didn't I? Um, in the early 80s, while Kellogg was trying to reinvent itself as Ski Town USA, the EPA was moving in. And that's because this corner of the Bitterroot Mountains was a toxic mess, due in large part to a 1973 fire in the smelter one of the biggest in the country, which destroyed much of the building's lead emissions filter. Here's another part of my conversation with Brad. They continued to run the lead smelter at full bore uh, for several months after this fire, and they badly poisoned uh, the community. It led to the worst uh, lead health epidemic in American history by far. Mm. Um, kids' blood lead levels all around Kellogg and Smelterville were off the charts. Yeah, and, and I read that even, I think, five or six or seven years later, you know, once there had been an intervention, that levels were still very high, uh, even among preschoolers, um, recording the, the 40 micrograms per deciliter. I think today the CDC considers five micrograms at, per deciliter at elevated level of blood. Right, of blood. right. And back then it was uh, 40. Um, but yeah, um, now really... Increasingly, the medical community sees any le level as unsafe, or at least as potentially unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, but even given the standards of the early 1970s, um, there were lots of people, and up, up into the 1980s, there were lots of kids in the Kellogg area who were lead intoxicated, hmm. uh, who were basically had been sickened by uh, the lead from the smelter. Wow, so what did the EPA do? It came in and removed tons of soil over a 21 square mile area in, in and around Kellogg. And by 2008, it had removed soil from 3,000 properties. Four feet of soil from the front and the back of each house was removed and replaced with wow. clean soil. I know. That's amazing. Like, I mean, just think about that for a minute. If someone came and removed like four feet of soil from your front yard mm -hmm. and backyard and yep. then like. So they also uh, capped some water wells, um, and then even before the EPA arrived, the mining company had hired locals to plant trees because the hillsides around the town were just completely denuded by the 70s. I talked to the marketing manager of Silver Mountain, and he told me that back then people would be driving through town and they would literally stop, get out of their car, and, and like were aghast, and they would ask people what happened there. So anyway, most of the visible scars are gone, and the soil is safer for sure. Um, the marketing manager told me how psyched he was to have his children playing in the backyard. Mm -hmm. um, and in the midst of the cleanup, in 1988, uh, Senator Jim McClure, the senior senator from Idaho, managed to stuff an earmark into the appropriations bill to fund a 3.1-mile-long gondola that would bring people straight from Kellogg to the ski lifts, thereby skipping a gnarly drive up a windy road to the resort. They renamed the resort again to Silver Mountain. They hired a higher-up from Aspen to run the place, and they tried to rebrand themselves as a Bavarian village which the old logging town of Leavenworth in Washington had successfully done. Full disclosure, I used to live in Leavenworth, and it's true. Uh, they are Bavarian Village now. But by the mid-1990s, when the world had still not discovered this little gem of a hill, the town cried uncle. So that's when Geld Wen came in and bought Silver Mountain from the town. Now, this is a window company that you might be familiar with, um, but surprise, they also had a little uh, real estate development company, and um, they were also owners of some other small resorts in the West. They invested tens of millions of dollars trying to develop Silver Mountain into a destination resort and seduce buyers to come invest in condos and vacation homes in a newly cleaned up mountain hamlet. We know they were successful with at least one man. That's right. <laughs> 
And from California, too, which really just <laughs> makes it all the better. He was their dream pick. <laughs> so the big vision to become a destination never really happened. And here's Brad again to explain how that unfolded. You know, the, the community of Kellogg has, has gone through the, you know, the plight of many uh, former extractive communities in the West um, where they're not doing extractive industries anymore. Uh, I think probably more of the stories resemble Kellogg's than they do the successful the success stories that we hear about, like Leavenworth, uh, Washington, which, as you well know, turned itself into a Bavarian uh, village uh, that the people love to visit, uh, or Park City, Utah, um, which turned itself from a mining community. Leavenworth was a logging community. Park City turned itself from a mining, silver mining community into a very successful destination ski resort. Um, Kellogg, in the mid-1980s, flat on its back, decided to combine those two ideas and turn itself into a Bavarian town uh, that was also a a Bavarian ski town, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bavarian stuff hasn't worked out very well. If you go to Kellogg, uh, there's not a lot of the Bavarian lettering uh, that once was mandated for all the buildings. yeah, the Bavarian facades that were mandated um, that, that didn't really uh, fit with the community's idea of itself terribly well, and, and the community would divide it over that issue, and, and a lot of people in the community really resisted, saying, you know, we're a mining town, we're, we're not a Bavarian village. And uh, they're still trying to do the, the ski town aspect of it. Um, I would say they've become a, a mid-level um, sort of weekend Ski Hill, mm-hmm. uh, probably comparable to Schweitzer Mountain, mm-hmm. um, another uh, Pacific Northwest hill, but they have never um, become a, obviously, or we would have heard about it, mm-hmm. they've never become anything like a Telluride or a Vale mm-hmm. or a Park City. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, when the EPA had wrapped up remediation in and around Kellogg, but wanted to expand its efforts to a wider area using funds from a settlement with mining companies that still operate in the area, some locals in the Silver Valley just wanted the EPA to leave. Superfund was a moniker they wanted to shake, and the government's presence was something they wanted to shake as well. Here's Brad again. My research indicated that this was the sort of the most resistance that EPA has ever faced on a Superfund site. Um, at one point in the early 2000s, uh, I believe EPA officials were requesting guards uh, to accompany them to uh, press conferences uh, in the in the valley. Um, you know, I think that there have been some very vocal critics of the EPA who've stirred up quite a bit. Um, I think EPA probably EPA officials probably could have done a better job at um, really getting to know the community better mm-hmm. um, and really getting to understand locals and their concerns. Um, but I think that most people out there would say that <clears throat> they've been happy for the money that EPA has spent. Um, they paid good wages, uh, Davis-Bacon wages, uh, for the cleanup. And they've been really the, the main economic driver, or at least the number one, mm-hmm. uh, 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 the leading economic driver in the area since about the mid-1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it cuts both way. I think that the critics of EPA are quite vocal. I think the supporters are might even be a silent majority um, out in the Silver Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, you do have some very vocal critics mm-hmm. out there. Um, I think certainly people are, are happy that the area is a lot cleaner and healthier than it was 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 35 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that the blood lead levels, that the children's blood lead levels have gone down to right around the national average. God, that's such the story of the EPA. Good at remediation, bad at talking to people. Mm-hmm. I swear if they were better at PR, people might let them just do their damn job. Right. So here we are now with Scott Pruitt leading the APA, an agency he clearly disdains. The good news is he's been saying up and down that he'll prioritize support for Superfund programs. Um, But Trump's recently confirmed pick for assistant administrator of the EPA Office of Enforcement is Susan Bodine, a lawyer who formerly worked at a lobbyist firm that represented consortiums of companies that have been named as responsible parties in Superfund sites. Uh, so that's kind of weird. It's just, it's amazing. Like, where where do they find these people? Well, I, they, I don't know. The courtrooms. Um, and then there are the bigger questions about funding as the proposed federal budget slashes about a quarter of Superfund funding. So I know that you mentioned when you came back from your Utah trip that there are some ski resorts doing some interesting things around this stuff. Who's doing it right or at least trying to? Well, geez, I mean, there's so much happening around the Wasatch Ski Resorts in terms of development and expansion plans right now. And there's mm. fights over those expansion plans and huge problems with traffic and housing um, on top of Every all. ski mountain USA. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. But on top of that, Salt Lake City and Provo have come to be known as the Silicon Slopes. Um, because they're emerging tech hubs. so Stop sticking silicon in front of everything, people. <laughs> I feel like marketing people just need to get like a new bag on that one. Just call it something yeah. else. Well, once there's silicon in everything, maybe they'll stop. And That's true. We're close to that. Yeah. Um, so, as long, so all these longtime locals are kind of freaking out because everything is getting more crowded. Sounds like Tahoe 2.0. Mm-hmm. So maybe the folks in Kellogg should thank their lucky stars. They've not become the next Aspen or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that there's a lot of mixed feelings about that. Yeah. So around Salt Lake City resorts, the news related to mining legacy tends to get drowned out by all this other stuff. Um, however, I did just did read a news piece uh, this summer on KPCW, a public radio station in Park City, that the EPA recently filed suit. Um, against Park City Mines because it hasn't yet started the work or paid a third party to do it. And the article said the agency could find the company up to $55,000 a day. Wow, that's actually meaningful money. So mm-hmm. that's that's good. I feel like whenever I get a press release about an EPA fine, it's like something so small that it seems like it won't really matter. But mm. 55 grand a day seems like they might actually do something. Yeah. As far as Snowbird is concerned, there is still some some mine remediation work to be done there, but everything is on hold right now, in part because the EPA is doing the first part of a Superfund assessment at the behest of a local environmental group to see whether one old mine is contaminating a downstream water source. It's not a coincidence that this old mine site is in the part of Snowbird's undeveloped property called Mary Ellen Gulch, where the resort plans to erect two chairlifts to extend its inbound skiing, which some locals surprise, surprise, oppose. Mm -hmm. Many argue that Snowbird is already massive, and it is, so why build more lifts? But Utah also set a new record for skier visits last season. And also, frankly, none of these resort operators are kidding themselves. They may only have so much time to get a return on their investments. I'm a 
only going to be 93 in 2065, so I definitely plan to still be snowboarding, but I might be riding indoors on plastic snow. Mm, just like Scotland. That's mm. what they do there. It's not plastic. It's ice, but it's also it's still ter- It's about as terrible as it sounds. <laughs> Anyway, the upshot to all of this is ski resorts that happen to be located in places with long mining histories are definitely still grappling with that history. And oftentimes when those resorts expand or increase development, they come face to face with their past. Super interesting. I really appreciate you bringing this story to range. It's like a perfect range story. I'm so excited to have it. If you guys want to learn more about it, we've included a link to Brad's book in the show notes. You can also follow MC on Twitter at MCOC. Nice. Um, And check us out online at rangepodcast.org. That's it for this time. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. Bye. Bye. Range is produced by me, Amy Westervelt, with original music from David Whited. The illustrations for each episode are done by Mr. James Guffman. You can find us online at rangepodcast.org or on Twitter at rangepodcast. Season two of Range is sponsored in part by a generous grant from the Nevada Humanities Council. If you have feedback on this episode, send us a note at howdy at rangepodcast.org. Oh, you're, I'm two. Oh, yeah, why am I? Oh. I'm two. Right. I'm two, you're one. (laughs) Amy, I think you're number two, actually. (laughs) You know what, my, um, my... Um, Archie keeps teasing me about that. He's like, I swear to God, mom, almost every time you poop, you clog the toilet. I'm like, he's only five and he's already got me nailed. (laughs) (laughs) Are we recording? I hope that's a good blooper. We are recording. (laughs) 